This show is a part of the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society, an international community of philosophers and seekers dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever they may be found. To find out more, go to thewalledgarden.com. In this episode of my series on Seneca's writings, I'm going to be diving into one final quote or passage from letter number two on discursiveness in reading. Now, in this passage, he's actually kind of rounding off the letter, and what Seneca usually likes to do with his letters to Lucilius is he will give a quote or a passage that he has been contemplating deeply, uh, almost as a gift to Lucilius at the end of each letter. And often he will quote Epicurus. And that's really interesting because Epicurus was, of course, the founder of the Epicurean school of philosophy, which was almost in direct opposition to Stoicism. And so, the reason I love that Seneca actually quoted Epicurus so much was, uh, and he said this himself, you know, he wanted to be knowing what other schools were up to so that we could take the value from their schools of philosophy and bring it into our own. And that's really important. And I think that it's important that Seneca did this. And, you know, I don't know if he had a specific reason behind why he quoted Epicurus so much at the end of his letters, but it seems to me like it almost might be there might be a chance that he was trying to get a message across, which is, listen, I'm trying to not be an ideologue here. You know, I'm not just a stoic philosopher. There's also, you know, there's value to be taken from every school. There's value to be taken from multiple different interpretations of life and the world. And so, at the end of this letter on discursiveness in reading, he pays his debts and he gives a quote from Epicurus, which is, quote, contented poverty is an honourable estate, end quote. And then he goes on to talk about this quote a little bit, and he says, quote, It is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor. What does it matter how much a man has laid up in his safe, or in his warehouse? How large are his flocks, and how fat his dividends, if he covets his neighbour's property, and reckons not his past gains, but his hopes of gains to come? Do you ask what is the proper limit to wealth? It is first to have what is necessary, and second to have what is enough. End quote. Now, there's a lot of ideas to unpack within this one passage, and it's hard to know where the appropriate place to start is or to, to know what the appropriate interpretation is. Uh, because, I mean, in one sense, what Seneca is talking about here is a kind of a clash of definitions of the word poor. You know, you might even think about, you know, in our, in our Judeo-Christian culture, you know, the, that I grew up in, and I know a lot of you aren't in this, but, uh, you know, an expression that we might hear is somebody is poor in spirit, right? And what that essentially means is that, you know, you might find somebody who is ungrateful, resentful, angry, you know, just just very, has a very negative outlook on, on their existence, right? And you might say that that's somebody who is poor in spirit. And that's kind of the the definition that Seneca goes by here, right? Because a lot of us, when we think of poor, we immediately think of money, and we think of a lack of money or a lack of material goods, right? But what Seneca is arguing here is that, hang on, 
There's multiple interpretations. We know that people can, if they are even in abject poverty, you know, they can still find the wealth of spirit to be satisfied and happy in their life, in their interpretation of the world, even amongst a lack of material goods. And so Seneca is saying here that, you know, it's not the person who has very little who is poor. You know, that's the incorrect definition of poor. The person who is poor is he who has a lot, has all that he could desire, and yet still covets his neighbor's goods and still wonders what he's going to get next, as opposed to appreciating what he has already gained and what he has right now. You know, and so that's one level of analysis that we can go at with this with this passage, because he's essentially arguing over the definition of what it means to be truly poor. Now, it's tough to argue that because, I mean, I take a look at myself. You know, I have never experienced abject poverty. I've never experienced having an extreme lack of something that you might say I would need in our traditional culture. And so, in that case, I probably fall more into the Aristotelian school of philosophy, which is kind of the idea that, you know, to live a truly happy, flourishing life, you you probably do need a little bit of material success, you might say. You do need a little bit of material goods uh, in order to kind of prop you up there and allow you to be still a player within this society that we are living in. But it's also important to recognize that it's not 100% necessary that you experience the phenomenon that we are discussing here of, of poverty, of having very little, before you contemplate these ideas and these concepts, right? Because one of the themes that runs through Stoicism, and I think that this is really important, the theme that runs through Stoicism is prepare your mind, prepare your soul, prepare yourself, so that if something happens, you'll be ready, or you'll at least be more ready than you would have been if you didn't prepare yourself, right? And so, when I think about this idea, what I kind of think of is, what's something that I could take with me, no matter what material gains I have in my life. You know, what are the attitudes, what are the belief systems, the value systems, the the perceptions of the world around me that I can take with me, no matter, you know, how wealthy or poor I am, that could help me to still live a flourishing life despite my external circumstances. Now, it's important that you contemplate that idea because the way that I see it is if you go through hardships and trials and tragedies in your life, which you absolutely will, then wouldn't it be better if you had meditated on how you could appropriately live a flourishing life despite those circumstances before they come and hit you. And, you know, when Seneca talks about how the truly poor person is not the person who has little, but is the person who has everything and yet still wants more and still covets those things that he sees in his neighbor's yard, you have to ask the question, is that true? 
And under the current definition of poor, which we see as somebody who has less exterior goods or less material monetary goods, uh, of course it's false. But under Seneca's definition, it's true. You know, and so you have to kind of pick which definition you're going to go by in your life. What does it mean to be wealthy to you? What does it mean to be poor to you? You know, do the goods that you seek constitute external material goods? Or do the goods that you seek mean more something like seeking intrinsically valuable goods, like gratitude or wisdom, stuff like that? And so, for Seneca, it's clear that the truly wealthy person, the person who he defines as superior above the rest, is the person who is rich in spirit, you know, who is rich in their soul, who who has gifts of gratitude, who has gifts of justice, wisdom, temperance, you know, courage, uh, the virtues, you know, it's a person who has internal goods stored up as opposed to a bunch of external goods and as opposed to somebody who is constantly looking for that next thing to have. And that really is another core picture that Seneca is painting here in this passage, which is to say that we need to increase our output of gratitude in our lives. We need to learn how to be appreciative of the life that we have and the experience that we are having. And one of the themes that runs through Seneca's writings is this idea that you will be experiencing a flourishing life to the extent that you can be grateful and appreciative of your current lot. And I really, genuinely believe that to be true. And I've seen this with my clients as well. You know, one of the exercises that I often give my my coaching clients is for them to simply go away and for a week, every night, just sit down for five minutes and write out three to five things that they were grateful for in their day. And one of the things that they tell me time and time again is... After just a week of trying to consciously think about the things that they could have been grateful for in their day, they start to notice those things more and more often. And in the moment as well, they start to notice the things that they should be grateful for. And when they notice them, they feel great. You know, because because you're actually paying attention to all that you should be grateful for, and you're starting to see the softer, more beautiful side of your life. And I've seen this so much in my clients and in my own life that I'm convinced that gratitude is a prerequisite to meaningful personal change. You need to be able to see and experience the good in your life before you try to move on to the next stage of development. And I just think it's so necessary, especially in the world that we live in today where All too often, you know, what's being sold to us as happiness and success and meaning is the newest item on the market. And that's just the opposite of what is true. And so I think this is such a necessary passage from Seneca. You know, consider what does it mean to be truly wealthy? Because it certainly isn't having that next thing. You know, to be truly wealthy is an internal game that we play. 
And I would say that it's very necessary that you start to play that game. So anyway, I'm going to continue to meditate on that quote from Seneca, and I really hope that you do too. And just remember that these episodes mean absolutely nothing unless they are useful to you in your life. Applied wisdom is what we are after, which means you take these ideas away, you think about how they relate to your life, and you start to implement these ideas to test them up against your own experience. And I hope that you do that because that's how this is going to be a meaningful pursuit for me as well. And if we can all get something out of this, then, you know, I'm a happy man and hopefully you will be better for it as well. So, continue to think about these ideas and I'm looking forward to the next episode. I'll talk to you next time.